is Teresa Treat, Associate Editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Dr. Shannon Wiltsey Sturman, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And Dr. Wiltsey Sturman also works the National Center for PTSD. She's authored a recently published article in Current Directions in Psychological Science that is titled Implementing Evidence-Based Mental Health Treatments attending to training, fidelity, adaptation, and context. Shannon, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today about your important contributions to psychological science. Thanks for having me. So could you get us started by helping us to understand why it is so important to conduct research on the implementation of evidence-based mental health treatments in settings in which they were not developed? Sure. Well, we know that uh, we can't have the impact that we want to have through our research without attending to implementation. Um, and, you know, there for a while, people had thought, well, if we write journal articles, people will see that these treatments can be effective. Um, then it was, well, if we give workshops, then people will know how uh -huh. to do them. <laughs> uh, and we learned that a lot of things weren't translating into clinical practice. Um, so implementation science really came about to try to help make that, make that connection between what we know works in research and making it work in practice. Um, it's not as simple as dropping an intervention into a, you know, into a clinic or a healthcare system because context matters so much. Yeah. Um, the populations sometimes are different in important ways. There are different constraints in the settings. There are different types of trainings and theoretical orientations and a lot of competing demands. So attending to implementation helps us uh, look at all of those things and um, design a plan and really attend to those realities while we're transporting these treatments into clinical practice. So go ahead. Sure. So early research was really focused on just identifying the barriers and facilitators, and that came out of efforts to, to implement where we could see things weren't working. And now over time, we've really started implementation is much more about trying to figure out strategies to overcome those different barriers and to leverage the different facilitators. And also, um, you know, just like we are in treatment, we're also trying to understand mechanisms of implementation strategies so we can get more targeted and efficient and really intervene where it matters the most. That's a really helpful overview. So early implementation research focused primarily on the role of therapist training in successful implementation efforts. Um, could you just provide a brief overview of what's known in this area before we move on to your more recent work? Sure. Um, so in the early 2000s, around 2004, 2005, there were some studies that came out that really demonstrated that just providing a manual or doing a workshop wasn't sufficient to prepare therapists to really provide these evidence-based treatments in a skilled, tailored, personalized, effective manner. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2010, Amy Herschel and colleagues published a review that was really helpful that indicated that some sort of follow-up support like consultation or coaching mm -hmm. or providing feedback was necessary. Um, and then a more recent meta-analysis by Helen Ballenstein, my and colleagues showed that while training can improve adherence, it doesn't actually improve that implementation and adoption of mm -hmm. treatment. Um, and there were mixed results about adding consultation. 
So um, the more recent research has started to look at questions about whether you need to do things like review audio recordings or observe sessions in any ways during training, whether consultation that includes things like um, modeling or behavioral rehearsal of different therapy skills can lead to better therapist outcomes. So now we're really looking under the hood of consultation to figure out what, what seems to matter. Sure, sure. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So you make a compelling case in the paper that translating an evidence-based mental health treatment to a new environment often requires adaptation of the treatment. Um, what kinds of adaptations might be necessary? What steps ideally would you take to ensure that things like treatment fidelity and treatment outcomes remain reasonable when you're making those changes or adaptations? Um, might you tell us about an interesting study in this area? Sure, yeah. Um, so when we're adapting, um, first of all, we know that ad ad adaptation is often necessary, mm -hmm. um, but we, we don't want to start with the assumption that we're going to have to make radical adaptations. Um, so it's really important to do a needs assessment and to work with some of the people that are going to be affected by the treatment um, or by the treatment implementation, including the therapists that are going to be doing the treatment. Um, the consumers of mental health or family members or people that are um, actually going to be receiving the treatment to try to understand what what could work here and what can't, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of things like the the examples, um, whether things um, that are in the the treatments sort of are, are a good cultural fit. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly looking at the um, the needs of the the, you know, the client population is very important. Um, but also there are adaptations that need to be made sometimes because of the context. There might be constraints, mm -hmm. um, you know, limited capacity. So it needs to be turned into group um, or we need to change the format even into, you know, something like a web-based stepped care model where there's some coaching or support. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, sometimes it needs to be shortened um, or you know, attention to other, other clinical problems might need to be integrated. For example, something like relapse prevention might need to be integrated into a, hmm. um, a treatment for depression or anxiety if someone has a um, you know, history of, um, of um, problematic substance use. So there are a lot of different reasons why we might need to adapt. Um, and ideally we can anticipate those by doing a good needs assessment and by, you know, by working with the individuals who are um, going to be affected by the implementation. Um, and so we have some different frameworks that can guide the process. Um, there are frameworks that are specific for cultural adaptations. Um, Anna Bauman, Anna Bauman and, and others have um, worked on those. Um, but also for broader adaptations, there are a couple of frameworks. One is called the MADI and one is called the IDEA. Those both came out in, in a, a few years ago um, that really sort of guide people through the process and some key considerations. Um, so when we know in advance, we can, we can use those, you know, those frameworks to, to provide some guidance. Um, other times though, um, we need to make modifications because of unexpected circumstances or things that you know, change very rapidly. So during COVID-19 telehealth was, sure. <laughs> you know, a, a big unexpected change that we needed to make pretty rapidly. Um, and, you know, some, some, in, well, initially everybody was doing it on the fly and then there was some planning behind, you know, how to do this more cohesively sure. with organizations. Um, so when we, you know, whether we're doing it, um, you know, with 
in advance in a sort of a planned way, or if we have to improvise a little bit more, one of the guiding principles, I think, is to to try to make sure that we're being as fidelity consistent as possible. So are we preserving the core elements or the core functions of an intervention? Um, if we're gonna change a component, are we preserving what makes it effective when we make a change? Um, and we try to minimize the number of fidelity inconsistent modifications that we would make, like removing elements or integrating different interventions that don't share an underlying theory of change or set of principles, because we wanna make sure that, you know, that the changes we make are um, in the spirit of making it as feasible and effective as, as possible. Uh, so it's just being thoughtful about that and trying to understand what's really necessary for the intervention to be um, effective and make sure we don't we don't make changes that would water that down or make those effective components go away. So sure. before we move on, might you be able to tell us about an interesting study in the area of the adaptation of treatment? Sure. Um, yeah, a few years ago now, um, Luana Marcus and colleagues um, implemented cognitive processing therapy in a community-based clinic that served a large population of immigrants. Um, about half of the participants in the, the study I'll talk about um, spoke Spanish and the, the sessions were conducted in Spanish. And um, so we adopted, uh, they adapted cognitive processing therapy by first working with the therapists and, and kind of piloting the, um, the manual and then mm -hmm. making some adaptations. And then they looked at fidelity and adaptations um, once the therapists were implementing the treatment. And what they found is that fidelity did matter. So mm -hmm. adherence was associated with um, more improvements in depression, competence was associated with more um, better better outcomes or greater change in, mm -hmm. in PTSD symptoms. But then over and above that, um, fidelity consistent adaptations was also associated with, um, with both PTSD and depression improvements. So that showed us that when you're adapting in a way that, that preserves the fidelity, but is responsive to the needs of, mm -hmm. of your clientele, you can actually um, get even better outcomes, which is no surprise to people who are who are doing sure. therapy. It's, it's a little bit. It, it's um, it looks like it doesn't entirely overlap with competence. You know that that sometimes uh -huh. the adaptations and the tweaks that people were making um, really did have an effect beyond um, what we would see with you know just good competent delivery of the treatment. Sure, that's very encouraging. So um, you've talked a little bit about this already, but what role do you see consultation and follow-up support for therapists playing in the effectiveness of treatment implementation? Um, what kinds of things do you think are the most important components um, if we're designing follow-up support for therapists? Um, and here too, might you be able to tell us about an interesting study in this area? Sure. Um, so the research does suggest um, that consultation First of all, um, what we found in some of our research is that when you do consultation, people are just more likely to offer the treatment um, hmm. to people. You know, they're more likely to be able to find cases and provide mm -hmm. the treatment. Um, but beyond that, um, it looks like it's been associated with greater fidelity and also better treatment outcomes. So um, I did a study with Candace Monson and some colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, several years ago, where we looked at different forms of consultation. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that when we offered consultation or when uh, the therapist who receives consultation had outcomes that were in the same, sort of in the same range of effect sizes that we see in clinical trials. 
Whereas, um, whereas when we offered uh, a different form of consultation or no consultation, but delayed uh, feedback on fidelity, we didn't see those improved clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, although, I mean, people did, you know, people still got better, but the magnitude of effects was much larger when they got um, a okay. specific consultation. And what we found is um, kind of to our surprise, we had thought that if we integrated some review of audio recordings of sessions into consultation that we would see better outcomes. Um, and we knew that it wouldn't be really feasible on a large scale to you know, listen to a one hour recording of a therapy session and then get feedback. So we were doing group consultation and people would play segments of their sessions in, um, in those consultation meetings. And we would, you know, we would try to have them play, you know, the segment of the recording where they were really working on a, a core skill from that session. Okay. And um, so we thought, you know, well, of course, this is going to lead to better outcomes, but it actually didn't. When we just did the, the case consultation where we discussed cases, but didn't have the recordings, we found um, that 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 was actually the condition where we got better outcomes. Um, so one caveat is that this was a pretty standardized treatment in terms of, you know, each session, there were specific things you needed to do. So it wasn't a case conceptualization driven treatment. And I think that might be important because I think if, if when you're working with a really case conceptualization, not that you don't use case conceptualization in CBT, but sure. you, you can get at that in consultation by saying, well, what were the key things that you were working on? What were the, what were the, you know, the core step points you were working on in the session. And that sort of helps you understand whether they were really understanding what was driving the PTSD. When you've got a more case conceptualization cognitive therapy, for example, you might need to listen to more of the session to make sure that people aren't missing something in their in their overall case conceptualization or that they're, you know, the interventions they're selecting are appropriate. Um, but with that said, what it looked like when we kind of drilled down into the data is that um, in the sessions, um, the, the therapists who had were present um, in more of the sessions where where they were actually focusing on how to apply the skills um, to specific individuals, like in the next sessions, mm -hmm. that's where things are better. So I think what might have happened is when you're listening to recordings, um, you're spending a lot of time looking at what people did, what they already did and helping them tweak or refine what they what they just did. And there might be a little less time to talk about, well, what are you going to do next? And how are you going to do that? It's really important. Um, so that's what our data suggested when we did some, um, when we kind of drilled further down into the, the sessions. Um, and um, so, but there's, there's really some interesting work going on um, in other labs as well about, you know, whether requiring things like role plays or doing some modeling um, associated with outcomes. So that's kind of where we are in the consultation um, space right now is like, what, what is it about consultation? What specific components of consultation um, might be important to really emphasize? Um, another thing that we found is just the process of consultation might have a kind of protective effect for therapists with lower self-efficacy. Hmm. Um, because what we found is that for um, low self-efficacy therapists who got consultation, mm -hmm. um, their outcomes looked about as good as, you know, higher self-efficacy. Wow. Okay. Therapists. Yeah. So, um, so there, there could be, uh, this is a study that Brian Pace headed up 
Um, it looks like the therapist with low self-efficacy who didn't get consultation had poorer client outcomes than therapists with low self-efficacy who did get consultation. Hmm. Um, you know, so so especially if you're not as confident about what um, how you're doing the treatment, um, that that can have you know not surprisingly that can have an effect on on how your sessions go. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we're making some really good progress on trying to figure out, you know, for whom, for what therapists and clients, and uh, what are the relevant mechanisms that might uh, be important for us to try to understand in terms of thinking about the role of consultation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely kind of where we are. And, you know, again, it's a it is still something that requires um, time and resources that a lot mm -hmm. of um, you know, that a lot of places don't really have. So we want to make it as efficient as possible and sure. get to a point where people can kind of get what they need um, and where we can actually see it translate not only to fidelity, but to the clinical outcomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's turn briefly to a different level of analysis now. Um, what organizational factors can make a difference in the effectiveness of our treatment implementation efforts? Yeah, um, this is really key, I think, because we've shown... Um, I say we, a lot of people have shown that um, you can train people regardless of the organizational climate, et cetera. You can, you can train them to the point where they can do good, you know, good therapy, you can, that they can do a good version of CBT or motivational interviewing or, mm -hmm. um, but then the, but that, that is then when the um, implementation context kicks in. Mm -hmm. um, we know that um, organizational climate and culture have been associated with things like um, turnover and new program sustainability. So, you know, if you can't keep people at the clinic and you've just trained them, obviously you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna <laughs> yeah. to see it. Yeah. Um, but then we also, um, there are, you know, there's evidence that implementation climate specifically um, could, uh, could have an impact on, um, you know, how well people are doing the treatment, how much it's offered, um, whether it's being done with fidelity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there have been some different um, implementation strategies that really focus on things like leadership, hmm. on changing the climate and culture. Um, so that's that's one direction that the research is going. Um, and then there are also things like uh, learning collaboratives and toolkits mm -hmm. uh, that provide some of the additional resources and support. And there are some promising either through kind of open trials and evaluations, um, mainly through open trials and random uh, and, um, and evaluations. But I think there's, you know, there are some studies that are starting to look at whether those um, add value over and above kind of just a standard consultation approach. Um, but, you know, aside from things like climate and culture and leadership, um, there are just some basic things like resources that mm -hmm. matter. Um, you know, if you're in a clinic that is, um, you know, understaffed, if there is not really funding to do that follow-up consultation, um, if you know if the capacity is over, overwhelmed and people can't see their clients, you know, every week or so, obviously we're not going to have great success in successfully implementing evidence-based treatments that require, you know, at least weekly treatment. Sure. So one final question for you today: um, What do you think are two of the most important future directions for implementation science? Um, yeah, there, there are a lot because it's, it's still a relatively new field. Mm -hmm. um, one of the areas that I think is really necessary is, um, as I mentioned earlier, looking at the mechanisms of implementation. Mm -hmm. 
action so that we can really you know, get more efficient and understand why and how some of these implementation strategies work. And that's really important because you know, just like with, um, with psychotherapies that are kind of complex and multi-component, a lot of the implementation strategies that are being used these days are, are multi-component, multi-faceted. And if we can sort of figure out what's most necessary um, and in how to sort of be efficient, obviously we'll get um, we'll get further, especially since we we tend to be working in um, in areas where there are somewhat limited resources. Mm -hmm. So I think looking at mechanisms um, is really important. We really also do need to learn how to scale training. Um, you know, I think what we found is you can do web-based trainings. Um, you know, of course, there are more and more Zoom workshops rather than in person. That does make it more efficient and cost effective. Um, but we've got to find ways to scale consultation. I think that there um, could be opportunities to look more at, um, you know, alternatives to consult, just in time consultation, maybe um, consultation that's more based on, um, you know, sort of a self-serve model where people can, uh, you know, go to a site and, and look to see if there are some common, um, you know, how common challenges can be addressed, look at some resources, and then maybe, you know, maybe then if they can't get what they need, then they could actually um, talk with a consultant. So I think there are, there are some different areas there that we could be looking at, and there are people sure. that are developing and doing research in those areas. So there, those are, I think, a couple of areas um, of implementation. I also think that Policy is a really important um, area to look at because, you know, if we don't have policies that are supportive of evidence-based treatments, both in terms of things like providing funding and making them accessible, but also making sure that the conditions um, are amenable, you know, that the staffing is appropriate and that we have resources that are needed to be able to do a good job of providing those treatments. Um, you know, I think without the policy and that high-level support, it's also going to be challenging to really um, make and sustain these changes. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for today, um, but I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to um, talk with us. Um, your work's really important and impactful, and this has been a very interesting conversation. So thank you very much. Great, I appreciated the opportunity to talk with you and to write this paper.